We end another week without constitutional legislative maps. We'll have to see next week whether the Ohio Supreme Court does something about it. Today, we've got a lot of other stories to talk about. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Friday, end of the week, first full weekend of May coming up. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. I'm Chris Quinn. Let's get going. Why is the Ohio Democratic Party suing Governor Mike DeWine involving the House Bill 6 first energy bribery scandal? Layla, this scandal could dog DeWine in the general election. Yeah, it certainly, certainly seems like we're off to that that start. They're, they're suing DeWine, claiming that a copy of his schedule that they received through a public records request was full of these illegal redactions. State Representative Jeff Crossman of Parma and Nelsonville City Auditor Taylor Sappington. These are the Democratic nominees for Attorney General and State Auditor, respectively. They, they have posted thousands of records obtained from DeWine's office related to the House Bill 6 scandal and former Public Utilities Commission Chair Sam Randazzo, who First Energy admitted to bribing in exchange for security favor, securing favorable policies for the utility. They've posted all these online. Well, this lawsuit questions why DeWine would redact parts or, in some cases, entire entries of his schedule from January 2019 to the present. The redacted schedule, among other things, shows that DeWine met on June 10, 2019 with Mike Dowling, who then led First Energy's lobbying efforts. They met for a half hour at the governor's mansion in suburban Columbus, and the calendar entry doesn't say what that meeting was about, but DeWine signed House Bill 6 the following month. An attorney for First Energy shareholders told a federal judge in March that Dowling, who was fired in the fall of 2020, along with then-CEO Chuck Jones, they were the, the ones who paid bribes to Randazzo and then-Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. Of course, you know, Householder is the only one of, the, of these guys who's been charged with a crime at this point. That's, that's important to keep in mind. But Ohio Democratic Part, Party Chair Liz Walters is accusing DeWine of trying to hide behind illegal redactions so that we can't see who else he's been meeting with. So, yes, we are just getting started in this political season and House Bill 6 and and what role DeWine did or did not play in the events surrounding it is going to weigh very heavily into the gubernatorial race. No doubt. So buckle up. <laughs> you know, it, it, it would be nice if we could say definitively that's true, but but they're, they're just nobody's paying attention. I sent out a text yesterday to the to the group of people that subscribe to, to the text I send out about what we're working on, just saying we're, we're trying to reset our coverage now, but we're troubled. Nobody voted. The turnout was terrible and people aren't paying attention. And I got blistered with responses from people that are really worried about this. Very thoughtful responses saying, how do we get people to pay attention? The people who are paying attention, Layla, you're right. This is a big deal. But it seems like most of the state is paying no attention whatsoever. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> You're just realizing this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were, yeah, you, you thought for, I mean, you were saying for a long time, like, oh, you know, uh, Ohioans are, they must be so concerned about how redistricting is going and how, how their, their wishes are being disrespected. No, no, no. I never, <laughs> no, I never thought they were paying attention to redistricting. We're just covering it. I am surprised about the HB6. We have a history of corruption scandals in the state and locally that did get a lot of attention. I mean, Coingate got a ton of attention, and it wasn't anywhere near the level of scam that HB6 is 
the county corruption in Cuyahoga County, I mean, that was like a gold mine for people reading our site and reading our newspaper because they couldn't get enough of it. This is the biggest corruption scandal in the state's history. $60 million in bribes, billions of dollars at stake of our money in our pocket. And it does point to the governor's office. He's having these meetings. Why aren't people paying attention? I don't know. You know, I will tell you, recently I was talking to a couple friends who are, who I generally deem as very, you know, plugged into current events. And, and uh, you know, we were discussing a lot of issues. And, and House Bill 6 came up, and they had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and I thought that I had, I, I couldn't believe it. I was really astounded. And, and they were like, tell me more, tell me more. And I, I, I just couldn't, I, I really, it was, I was really amazed that, that this was right over their heads. So what are they doing? Watching Fox news? I, is, no, or, I they're guess not, if, they're not of that cloth. I'm telling you. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, if do, this, and then maybe they watch local television news or they listen to idea stream because they're not covering much of this. It, and it might be that, that that's the, that that's the case or that, that there's something about, uh, the accessibility of, I don't know that they're, that maybe this is too, um, I, I don't know what it is that once, once they, I, I'm not exactly sure why, why this one flew right past them when, as it was unfolding, but, but well, I'm telling you, they, they had no idea that, that it was, as as awful as I'm like literally this is the worst corruption case in the state of Ohio's history you never heard about it <laughs> I couldn't believe it so you're right I've been no around a long attention. time <laughs> yeah but I've been around a long time and and until the last four or five years people that claim they were newsrooms that, that did news covered this kind of stuff but it seems like today all you're running after is drug deals and homicides and nobody's really paying attention to this we are the ohio capital journal is and a couple of other news agencies elsewhere in the state are but you're right if people are getting their news from from television news reports they don't know anything about it because it's barely touched upon very interesting but it, We'll see if, if it gets to DeWine, and we'll see if it matters. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With some in the nation transfixed by the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp defamation trial, reporter Julie Washington took a look at how many people have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner. They're called toxic relationships. And Laura, unlike HB6, my bet is TV has covered this a lot, so everybody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think this is a fascinating case because you've got celebrities airing dirty laundry and uh, just in a public forum. And as Julie Washington puts it, it's a fairy tale romance curdled into a destructive cycle of fights, slaps, shattered glass, demeaning comments, and accusations of cheating. So, I mean, you've got your soap opera right there. And both parties claim they were abused by the other. By the other. But this is not just something that happens, you know, that in celebrities, this affects tens of millions of Americans. There are more than 43 million women and 38 million men who have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And this is a huge number. I mean, about one in four women and nearly one in 10 men have experienced sexual violence. And uh, from July 2020 to June 2021 in Ohio, there are 131 fatalities reported by the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. So, I mean, this is happening every day, and it's scary. The numbers that she reported were staggering. I mean, I just mm -hmm. did not expect it to be that high. And it's both sides. It's not, it's not one gender on the other. It's, it's attacks in both directions.
Absolutely. And I, so what Julie did is she talked to experts. She looked about, she let us know about red flags in dating so that you can be aware before you get in too deep into one of these relationships and then how to get some help. So some common red flags include gaslighting, uh, blaming the victim for anything bad that happens, accusing the victim of flirting with others or having affairs and controlling what the victim wears. And I think we probably all know someone who has been in this kind of relationship and it's really hard because you have to realize it yourself. You know, you're not necessarily going to understand if other people are pointing it out. But I think the most you can do is to listen and help people recognize abusive behavior. And then if they make a plan to leave, help them carry that out. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the hot housing market suddenly cold? What has happened that could have a profound change in the real estate landscape? Lisa. I don't know if it's cooling off yet, but some experts predict that that may happen in the very near future. Of course, earlier this week, the Federal Reserve raised short-term interest rates by a half a percentage points, and right after that, several banks raised their prime lending rate. Regionally, Key Bank, PNC, and Huntington all raised their prime lending rate to 4%. That's up from 3.5% before the Federal Reserve hike. PNC Chief Economist Gus Foucher says he expects rates to increase through 2022 and into 2023. And he said this will lead to a weaker housing market. People will have less buying power because of higher interest rates. So right now, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is about 5.27%. That's up from 5.1% just last week. It was 2.9% last year. So on a $150,000 home, your payment with this new interest rate will be $830 a month. That's about $15 extra a month or $5,400 over the life of the loan. On a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage, it's now 4.5%. That's up from 4.4 just last week. It was only 2.3% last year. So the 30-year mortgage is the highest since 2009. You wonder if this will finally slow the rise of house prices. A lot of people have been priced out of the market, particularly younger people. But if the mortgage rates go up, the supply of houses expands, it should slow the price rise, right? Or do we just think the hot housing market is so hot that it can withstand the higher rates. Well, analysts with Freddie Mac were saying that they expect price growth to continue. Inventory is still very low. There's not a lot of new construction going on, but they do expect price growth to slow down in the coming months, and we probably won't see prices roll back anytime soon either. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish sticking with Brad Sellers on the board that oversees the former medical mart, even though Sellers is under criminal investigation? Layla, we speculated about this, I think, last week, but now we know the answer. Yeah, Budish is sticking with Sellers. Budish recommended Sellers on, on Monday to serve a second term through April 2025. And I really couldn't tell you why other than, you know, I don't know, Sellers is is really fully on board with the idea of pushing through that plan to pour $46 million into renovations to that failing global center. So 
why swap him out now, you know? Um, you know, for listeners who need a refresher on all the drama in this county, Brad Sellers is the mayor of Warrensville Heights, who announced he was going to run for county executive earlier this year. And then a couple days later, Caitlin Durbin published stories revealing that while mayor, he had granted himself a tax abatement and then signed a notarized document claiming to be debt free while owing thousands of dollars in unpaid property taxes. So once that was out there, uh, the county prosecutor referred that, referred that case to the Ohio Ethics Commission for investigation, and that is pending. And, of course, he dropped out of the county executive race, you know, seconds later. So, um, you know, meanwhile, his term on the Global Center board had expired last month, and Budish seemed really squeamish about answering questions about, you know, whether he was going to reappoint Sellers. And then out of the blue last week, Sellers shared this information during the quarterly board meeting that suggested his position had already been secured. And the county later denied it, saying Budish had not yet made the appointment. And so finally, Budish coughed up an official document reappointing sellers to the board. So that answered that question clearly, finally. <laughs> yeah, and we said this before. It, just, it seems odd. Yeah, I mean, sellers is not charged with anything. And if he is, he's innocent until proven guilty. But generally, when public officials get into this kind of hot water, they, they move aside. You don't put them into high-profile positions, and you wait to see how things end up. I mean, in some of the public service professions, they have to step down pending the outcome, even if it's on paid leave. So it just seems odd that you would reappoint him now with this huge cloud hanging over his head. And let's face it, the evidence, we uncovered it, is pretty damning. So why would why would Budish do this? Is it just more finger in the eye of the public? He's he's got sour grapes that he couldn't get another term and he's just going to stick it to everybody. I think this is more a pragmatic decision. I mean, those ethics commission investigations take a long time. And so he's banking on that. And I think that Sellers is in his position, a good shepherd for that forty six million dollar vote. So. All right. That Don't you sounds think? reasonable. I mean, I think that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, probably. They're full steam ahead. Yeah. We talked about that. What last week? This week, they are they're they're putting the the pedal to the metal on that. They want to secure, put all the pieces in place to to get that you know that that going. They're so. It's such a scam. Do you see Dave Gilbert wrote an op-ed about that project over the weekend? He's the head of Destination Cleveland, which brings in conventions, and he's arguing for it, of course. But I loved when he, he talked about the funding, but the part that the taxpayers now would have to come up with is a modest $23 million investment. <laughs> I love when you it's say $23 million and modest <laughs> in the same words. Think about what you could do with $23 million if you didn't flush it down this thing. It's amazing that they're moving forward on it. It's Today in Ohio. What does a Lake County native who has helped find shelter for 1,000 orphaned children in Ukraine want Northeast Ohio residents to do? Laura, she says there's real urgency here. Yeah, she basically wants help. She's looking for any kind of help she can get in the form of donations for New Horizons for Children. This is a group that has helped with... uh, obviously kids throughout the world in, in crisis. And she's a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma-informed care. She says the Russian invasion has created this deepening humanitarian crisis. And she's been working with government authorities and caregivers to so far secure housing and care for a thousand um, orphans in Ukraine. But there's going to be a lot more need. Does, what, 
what is she really asking us to do though? Does she give money? I mean, that's what that's what they're asking to do. If you go to the website, it's basically like you can help here and it's a a spot to give money. And I mean, I think some places around Northeast Ohio have collected things, but it's, you know, it's like what we talk about with the food bank. We can give food to the food bank, but it it makes so much more sense. It gives so much greater help with their buying power to just be able to give money and they don't have to worry about shipping things. Um, They've developed 23 safe havens, housing more than a thousand children and their caregivers in in Ukraine. They've converted old boarding schools to makeshift orphanages. And I mean, I can't even imagine the chaos that's going on over there. And so she's been there. She's seen on the scene and knows what, what they need. Yeah. It's the reports that just keep coming out. It's brutal. There's now a, a, big investigation about Russian soldiers raping many women and how difficult it is to prove that is a war crime. It's really bad. It's today in Ohio. How are synthetic opioids shaking up the illegal drug scene in Ohio and worrying investigators? We saw a whole new worry on the drug scene. Yeah, there's a new group of synthetic compounds that are starting to show up in Ohio and in Cuyahoga County. They're known as nitazines. They actually date back to the 1950s. They were testing these compounds for pain relief, but they haven't been approved for medical use for decades, and they're now being made in illegal labs. They believe that a lot of this stuff is coming from China. The Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation says in the first quarter of this year, they had 143 nitazine-related cases. That's up from only 27 last year in the same quarter. Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Gilson says, this stuff started showing up in the morgue around December 2020. They had two deaths in 2020, and then now they have 60 now through 2021. Um, DeWine, uh, Governor DeWine, did sign an executive order in April that bans seven nitazine compounds that have around the same potency as fentanyl. Some are more powerful. One of them is 20 times more powerful than fentanyl. Some are about the same. Some are a little bit less. So it depends on the compound. But this is just another new worry on the opioid front. Well, the county does have a lot of settlement money from the opioid crisis from the pharmaceutical companies. You would think that they might invest some of it in really combating this. If you have something that's 20 times worse than fentanyl, we're going to see a lot of deaths if it spreads. And the problem with this, you know, these compounds are not like selling on the street pure. I mean, they're being mixed with other They're mixed with heroin, they're mixed with fentanyl, they're mixed with other drugs. And so the problem is on the street, you have no idea that you're buying a nitazine or whatever. I mean, you don't know what you're buying on the street anyway, but you could be getting a nitazine. And if you get something that's 20 times more powerful, you're probably not going to survive it. Okay, it's today in Ohio. Let's talk about a story we didn't get to earlier in the week. What makes the revival of the Parent-Teacher-Student Association at Shaw High School so unusual? This is such a remarkable story. East Cleveland Schools announced that Shaw High School's Parent-Teacher-Student Association will be run by dads. Alexis Oatman reports that the district recreated the group after 40 years, and it's the first time men will oversee it. And it's believed to be one of the few such organizations in the country led by school dads. The district cited data from the National Parent-Teacher Association that shows that active fathers and father figures working with the parent organization can promote more significant physical and emotional well-being of children. And the district says that that decision is in line with the goals that they set out by 
uh, that were set out by the, the East Cleveland's revitalization plan, which was sent to the parents and families of students in, in December. The plan, which goes into effect July 1st, aims to prepare students for careers and post-secondary success through rigorous academic opportunities. I just love this idea. I, in any community, you find so few dads engaged with the work of the schools. And, you know, I was looking around, I found this New York Times story that said the dads make up just 10% of the membership of PTAs nationwide. And that data is somewhat dated, but enrollment in PTAs since then has really dropped significantly overall. And I know from my own personal experience, and Laura, I'm sure you can back this up too, that those duties and really most school-related volunteering is overwhelmingly left in the hands of mothers, regardless of whether they work outside the home. And I don't want to sell short the dads I've seen in the schools consistently, but that is almost universally considered the mother's domain. And God bless East Cleveland for this paradigm shift. I mean, Laura, what if yeah. all the dads walked into your school's PTA <laughs> meeting and were like, we got this? <laughs> <laughs> I love this story so much. When this came over, I was like, we need to do a story on this. And when it published, I sent it to all my PTA mom friends, all of us who had been squabbling over who, please, would take over the PTA presidency <laughs> next year. Because it's it, unlike in some communities, we don't have people vying to be it. It's like, okay, fine, I will take it if someone helps me. And it, it is a lot of work. We're talking about all the things they do for the kids, all the things they do for the teachers and, and raising money. And I, I got to give a big hand to these dads. Um, at Shaw High School. Way to go, guys. I mean, <laughs> you are a model for the rest of us. Yeah. Do you not see, the dads that come to the parent-teacher conferences, or is that all They do, and too? they do volunteer. I don't want to say they don't volunteer at all, but they don't take the leadership positions in the PTA. I mean, I've been involved with the PTA now. My kid's in fifth grade, so that many years, and I've never seen a dad take a committee chair or, you know, president, vice president, secretary, treasurer. And so, Chris, you were asking, do they come to parent-teacher conferences? Yeah, I th I'm, I'm yeah. sure they do, right? Like, Laura... Absolutely, yeah. 100%. I'm not saying they're not involved at all. And my husband does a lot, and he's volunteering with Girls on the Run. But it's somehow – I think the PTA changed their name in the 20s from, like, the Mother's was, Congress or yeah, something. something. I don't want like to be quoted that. on yeah, this. Mothers. But it had moms in the title. But you and, know what? Um, so it could be more inclusive, but it Have you noticed that? Really so happened. they still have – you know, when there's the PTA, but then there's, like, the, the room parent who, who is, like, mm -hmm. the head person who coordinates, who volunteers in the classroom for classroom parties and, and stuff. Parties. And yeah. notice everyone still calls that person the room mom. That is true. That is they always true. default to saying the room mom, and it's and it's well, it's really kind of sexist, and it uh, and it, it it you know. And then anytime a dad does show up for those, even though there are there are quite a few dads who participate in in you know the parties and handing out the you know all the you know whatever, it still is like ah the dad showed up. Well, all right. As the as the lone male on this this podcast, I wonder if it's because it has this traditional feel that the PTA is women. I mean, it sounds like I. The, I mean, I when my kids were in school, it's been a while. Dads were active. They were they were there. It was it was a big deal. Very different from when I was growing up. But I don't know about the PTA, and I wonder if it's really a public relations thing to say, hey, dads, PTA isn't just for moms, because my bet is they would participate, but they probably, or some, may hold back, thinking I'm not going to Bigfoot that. That's not We're too intimidating, Layla. I do not yeah, exactly. think that men are in saying that they're intimidated, too intimidated to join the PTA. I think that they're just I think like, there are, I that's think... for chicks. 
It's funny because I think traditionally it has been moms and that's the way it is. It's like little league coaches. I haven't seen a female little league coach in my experience yet. But, I mean, hopefully people keep mixing it up. All right. Well, it's a great story. It's really cool what's going on there. I'm glad we talked about it. I didn't think it would spark this kind of a discussion. It's Today in Ohio. We talked last month about a huge mural planned for a building near the Old Stone Church in downtown Cleveland, but we've got another big one going in down by the Cuyahoga River. Laura, who's painting it and where is it going? This is going on the big house of the Foundry, which is the Community Rowing and Sailing Center in the flats near Merwin's Wharf. And Josh Gunter has gorgeous photos. And I mean, I got to give him props for his writing, too, because I'm going to quote him. He said, like a rowing skull cutting through the Cuyahoga River water just feet away, Detroit artist Pat Perry's paintbrush skillfully cuts a line of paint across the side of a cinder block block wall. The brush leaves a wake of color behind. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? Um, And this is going to be a, it is, it's up now, a beautiful mural depicting three rowers in a boat that runs the length of the building. Um, It faces downtown and it's real close to the Cleveland script sign. So if you need some Insta posts, you know, or you got people from out of town, this is where to go to get your photos. And, and what, what's driving it? What is it just, they want to make it more photogenic? I mean, it's just, it's, and it's a they, big space that's uninterrupted. And the, foundry, the Foundry is an incredible facility that we have in Cleveland. And they're very much about, you know, creating a better place for, for Cleveland and, and giving opportunities to kids. So this includes a public river walk and other improvements to beautify the area. They want to tell the story of rowing in Cleveland, which, like the Western Reserve Rowing Association, has, you know, been going on for a long time in Cleveland in the Cuyahoga River and create this unique public space. So this is Perry's second mural in Cleveland. In 2016, he created one for Land Studios Interurban Program on the RTA Red Line. It's amazing as you drive around town, the number of murals that are popping up everywhere. There's a beautiful one near 55th Street on Carnegie. Mm-hmm. It just seems like as we all head into the city a bit, you're seeing that a lot of these have come up in the past couple of years while we've all been you know, hiding in our igloos. <laughs> so it'll be cool to see this one. It'll be cool to see the huge one that's going up in downtown. Murals everywhere. It's a lot better than paint flaking off the sides of buildings. It's Today in Ohio. It makes Cleveland unique in the world. And this week we learned who is in the latest class to be inducted. Lisa, who's getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? There are seven inductees this year, and they include Dolly Parton, who at first said she didn't want to be inducted because she's a country music person. But then she changed her mind and she did make this year's class. Also includes 80s rocker Pat Benatar, Carly Simon, a songstress from the 70s, rapper Eminem, R&B giant Lionel Richie, uh, Duran Duran, and the Eurythmics. But they buried the lead here because the ceremony for this year's class is going to be in November in Los Angeles. It's the first time it's been in Los Angeles since 2013. Before now, we've been alternating between Cleveland and New York, but it sounds like they're putting LA back into the mix, although they were very cagey about, you know, whether LA was going to continue to be an an induction site. Yeah. They haven't said yet whether they're going to keep their promise of every other year in Cleveland. If they don't keep their promise, it's going to be pretty sleazy because Cleveland has counted on that. This is a class though, that there's been a lot of complaints over the years that the rock called disrespects women, but you got Pat Benatar, you got Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics, the Dolly Parton one, you continue to see lots of people scratching their heads on that one. I, I, yes, she's a pop icon. She's a wonderful person. Everybody loves Dolly Parton. 
but it just feels like a serious break from what the rock call is about. At least that's what many, many people are saying. There are musicologists saying, no, 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 she's a great songwriter. She inspired a lot of people to, that are that are real rockers, but it's a weird one. But let's turn this around. So she's already in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Country Music Hall of Fame has not, and they have had influences from rap. I mean, trap, country trap is like a direct influence of rap. Do you see them inducting rappers into the Country Music Hall of Fame? You don't. They've kept it pretty pure over there. Yeah, Yeah, but the Country Music Hall of Fame is nothing nearly as cool as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. (laughs) I mean, I love country music and I've been there, but I was disappointed by the actual museum. Just going to say, Rock Hall is better. Can I ask, do you guys think that Dolly Parton's initial, you know, turning down the nomination was all a PR stunt to get everyone to no. their, to just no. to endear herself? No. No. She's, oh, Dolly, no. you're so, you know. No. No. She, no she's I don't genuine. think so yeah, she is a very genuine person. I, I couldn't yeah. see that happening. Well, see, it worked. And, and what she said at the time was, Maybe I'll write a rock song and earn my way in. I mean, she yeah, was actually humorous about it. it. <laughs> it's just an it's odd one. It's been like I, a month. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, juxtapose Pat Benatar and Dolly Parton. I mean, it's, there's a disconnect. But you know, everybody loves Dolly Parton. She's like Betty White. Who doesn't love Dolly Parton? So this will be a big buzz for the rock hall. Certainly has people talking including us interesting class of people uh but it won't be in cleveland we'll be able to just see the exhibits in cleveland it's today in ohio that does it for a friday discussion about the news thanks lisa thanks layla thanks laura thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast we'll be back on monday 